Second Kings chapter nine, if you'll turn there with me. Last time we just sort of began to enter into chapter nine, we went down as far as verse three in chapter nine. So we'll kind of just step back and recap from the beginning of the chapter there that we looked at the first three verses together. And if you read ahead, Second Kings chapters nine and ten really address the life of this man Jehu, who becomes uh, the next king in uh, the northern part of Israel during this time of the divided kingdom. And I will be the first to say, if you didn't read ahead or if you are familiar with these chapters, uh, certainly there are some difficult things as you read through here uh, in some ways to be able to see that are transpiring. Uh, There's some real bloodshed and some real carnage. Uh, (laughs) So uh, certainly the Bible doesn't lack for being interesting on occasion what's recorded here of these historical events. And let me just, in light of that, say what I'd like to do this evening is kind of to go through chapters 9 and 10 uh, to take that whole narrative. It covers the life of this man, Jehu. uh, And certainly, again, what I'd like to do is is sort of just reflect on the narrative itself and kind of work our way through the narrative. And hopefully then maybe as we come to the close, be able to try and make, uh, by the Spirit of God's help, a, a few applications maybe that we can draw out of this uh, for ourselves. Uh, but let me say a couple things on, on the front side. First of all, the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel chapter 4 uh, that the Most High rules in the affairs of men and in the nations of men and that he sets up kings and he tears down kings, the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel. And so it's important for us to realize, and I want you to keep this in mind as we read through this section, you're thinking, man, this is some difficult stuff to read and some real just kind of sad and, and, you know, really, like I said, traumatic events taking place to realize that God is always working sovereignly, even through the most unordinary events of life because the things that are happening in these two chapters honestly it's very clear that the word of the lord is being brought to pass prophecy is being fulfilled from about a time of about 15 years prior to this when god made a declaration of judgment regarding the house of ahab and his wife jezebel for their wickedness. So though we may look at these things and think, how in the world is God at work in the midst of things like that? We need to realize that God uses all things. God is a way of orchestrating even the behaviors of men and activities. And a lot of times God is doing things and we're completely unaware that he is working in some of the most unusual ways. I was just speaking to someone on the phone yesterday who's, you know, going through some, you know, challenges, particularly with, you know, a a marriage relationship and separation and so forth. And was just kind of saying to them, look, haven't you been praying Maybe some of what's happening, because there was some difficult stuff, maybe some of what's happening is actually God answering prayer, but in a way different than what you expected. And maybe he's allowing these things to unfold and you're praying for, you know, God to turn the corner or reconciliation. And maybe what you've been praying for, God's saying, I'm answering it. I'm just not doing it the way you expected I was going to. And yet God is still working in the midst of those things. And as I said, that's kind of what we need to remember as we're looking at these things. The word of the Lord is coming to pass. In fact, if you want to hold your finger here, just turn with me quickly back to 1 Kings chapter 21. 
Because this will kind of give you the context as we just kind of make our way through this narrative of really what's happening at this time historically. First Kings chapter 21. This is again about maybe 14, 15 years or so prior to this event we're going to read about in second kings tonight in chapters 9 and 10 and here what we have is elijah the prophet pronouncing the word of the lord against the wicked king ahab and his very wicked wife jezebel first kings 21 uh, look with me there in verse 20 this was right after the time when they murdered naboth and stole away his vineyard uh, it says in first kings 21 Verse 20, Ahab, so Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now listen to this. Here's God's pronunciation. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, that is your descendants, your family line, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger. Continually, Ahab and Jezebel provoked God to anger personally by their idolatry, their immorality, as well as they had made Israel sin. So not only did they sin personally, but as national leaders, they were leading the nation into walking away from God and, and following after idols and Baal worship and the worship of Molech and other gods and just leading God's people into a place of moral deterioration and spiritual rebellion. And God held that uh, very severely against them. And concerning Jezebel, verse 23, the Lord also spoke saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one, the Bible says, like Ahab, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. That is, she influenced him in a great way towards his wickedness. Verse 26, and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So very clearly God had prophesied to Ahab, to Jezebel, that they were going to be judged for their great provocation against the Lord because they had provoked God to anger. They had sort of poked God in the eye brazenly, rebelliously. They did wicked things. They murdered people. They led the nation into great moral and spiritual depravity. And because of that, God's judgment was going to come upon them for their sin. They were going to be removed and their whole dynasty and family line was going to suffer greatly for that. Now that was prophesied, but yet those things have not come to pass for over a decade. Well, now those things are going to come to pass. And again, it's just a good reminder that sometimes people may do what is wrong. They may do what's sinful. They may do what's evil, whether on a personal level or maybe on some leadership level or maybe even on the highest level of a national ruler. And we may think that's not fair. Why are they not being dealt with? Well, maybe the answer to that is yet. Yet. Because the Bible says that what we sow, we reap. 
And ultimately, God will deal with sin and rebellion. And it's an important reminder for us, too. If we think that we can do what's wrong and kind of elude and escape and get away from things, we are making a grave mistake in recognizing that we are not getting away from God. We're not running away from consequences. We're just running out of time because ultimately things will come to pass and God will deal with things as is necessary. So this is what we're going to see happen now in chapter 9. The Lord is going to bring about that word of prophecy, that judgment against Ahab and Jezebel by raising up a man named Jehu to be his instrument really to bring about that judgment on God's behalf. Uh, Chapter 9 of 2 Kings, if you're not there, turn back with me. Let's kind of work our way through this narrative. As I said, hopefully we won't get bogged down in the midst of it. But it says, chapter 9, verse 1 of 2 Kings, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets. We saw this last time. And he told him, take a flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. So he sends him on a mission to go pronounce the word of the Lord. And when you arrive, the young prophet was told, at the place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go and make him rise up among his associates and take him to an inner room. So take him away from his associates. He's a military general. Get him away. He'll be in the midst of a meeting. Take him to a private location. And then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head. That is anointing. It was a recognition that God had chosen someone for something. They would anoint the priests. They would anoint kings. So it was very evident what was happening here. He was to go and announce to uh, Jehu that the word of the Lord says I've anointed you now king over Israel and then the important instruction as soon as you announce that open the door and run (laughs) and don't delay (laughs) because he's not the current king and the current king is still alive (laughs) so if you're going to go tell the military general you're the next king of Israel and you don't know how that's going to come to pass it might be wise if you're going to bring that word of hey this is what you should do it's time for you to you know usurp the throne create a conspiracy assassinate the king and take over he says you might be best to announce that and then just get out of there do what needs to be done say what needs to be said and sometimes you know there's great wisdom in just doing what the lord asks us to do and not going beyond that Uh, And so here he says, go and make that announcement. Verse four, so the young man, the servant of the Lord, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. Very interesting that God still calls Israel the people of the Lord. At this point, the nation of Israel, I mean, we've been seeing this in our studies, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. I mean, they have turned so far from God. The nation is in moral depravity. I mean, they are in a downward spiral, spiritually, morally, turned so far away from the ways of God and serving God. And yet, notice, though they've forsaken God, God is very patient to keep bearing with people, to keep tracking with people. And here God still says, look, you may have forsaken me, but I haven't forsaken you yet. You're still my people. You're still a nation that I care greatly about. God still wanted to work. I mean, it's interesting to me that he would refer to the people of Israel, the nation, as the people of the Lord. They weren't living that way, but that was God's desire. So he says, I've anointed you the next king 
over the people. And now it seems the Holy Spirit prompts him, though he wasn't instructed to do this, the Holy Spirit prompts him with a prophetic word to rehearse and restate the prophecy that we just looked at from 1 Kings, a prophecy from, as I said, 13, 14, 15 years ago chronologically, the Holy Spirit brings this same prophetic word now to this prophet that Elijah had pronounced that time ago, over a decade ago, to in a sense convey to Jehu, this is why you're being made the king. You are God's chosen instrument for a purpose. He says, verse seven, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I, the Lord says, may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut them off from Ahab and all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. Again, that was a great disgrace, as we talked about before, in these ancient times. More disgraceful than dying a despicable death was not having a dignified burial. To them, th this was more of a disgrace. So to not get a dignified burial, th this was, was a tragic thing. It was just a great form of dishonor. So that's the idea here. So dishonorable had Ahab and Jezebel lived that even in their death... They wouldn't be properly cared for, even though they were kings or honored because they had been so wicked and vile in their behavior that literally the, you know, the dogs and scavengers would just eat their corpses. And he then opened the door, and he remembered the important part, and fled. <laughs> he said, okay, I already did what I was told to do, and I just gave a word, a prophecy the Holy Spirit gave to me. That's probably more than enough. I'm going to get out of here and let God just take control from this point. So he gives this word. He announces he's the next king, and then he gives insight why he was to be the next king, that this man, Jehu, by the gracious, sovereign choice of God, was selected to be the human instrument, basically to carry out, you could say, sort of the, the death warrant, to eliminate the household and the descendants of Ahab, to bring about the word of the Lord, which was a prophecy that Ahab's family line, him and Jezebel, would be removed by God because of their great sin and wickedness, that that would be their judgment. And he was now going to be the human instrument. And again, here we have where God so often could work and work without us, but God often does his work through human instrumentality. Now, certainly when you look at this, you think, man, that's almost kind of hard to think. In essence, you're saying this man is God's instrument and basically he's God's instrument to just kill people? I mean, really, that's, he's a military general. He's a commander that's very intimidating. He's a high-ranking military officer. And so his assignment basically does become to execute, if you would, sort of the death sentence in the same way that, you know, judicially or, you know, from a legality standpoint, that if someone is sentenced to death, somebody has to carry out the death sentence in a process if there's been a capital, you know, punishment for a crime or whatever. And that's really what Jehu is tasked by God to do here. He just becomes the Lord's instrument to carry these things out against the house of Ahab. So verse 11 says, Jehu, after getting this word, came out to the servants of his master, his associates, his lieutenants and captains that he was meeting with. And they said, is all well? Why did this madman 
come to you. Now, that's not the first time a godly person has been referred to in that way. This madman, or this prophet, he was like, well, who's this madman? What do you come running in here? He said, I need to talk to you privately. He goes in the room, and then all of a sudden they see him running out the back door real fast. And now here comes Jehu out of the room they were talking in. And think about it. He's got oil dripping down all over his head, you know, dripping off of his beard maybe. And they say, what did that madman do in there? <laughs> what, what, what was that about, that meeting? Well, he tried to dismiss it at first. He said, he said to them, verse 11, you know the man and, and his babble. He tried to just dismiss it, but they said, a lie. Tell us now. Don't, don't hold back from us. Thus and thus he spoke to me. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. So he, he admits openly, he just announced to me and anointed me that the Lord has chosen me to be the next king over Israel, that he was going to get a promotion from being the commander in the army of Israel to being the king over the nation of Israel. Verse 13, it seems those around him as captains and lieutenants somehow saw the hand of God in this because with very little resistance, verse 13, they didn't yell treason. It says, each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps and they blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, then conspired against Joram. That's the king that is the king in northern Israel at this time and who he will have to remove and assassinate. Now, Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. We saw that at the end of chapter 8, that he was recovering from a battle that he had gone out to with Ahaziah against the Syrians. So Jehu said to those who just agreed with him to be the next king, he said, if you are so minded, in other words, if you are of one mind with me that this is of the Lord and I am to be the next king of Israel, then he says, if you're so minded and one-minded with me, then let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. Don't, don't let the word get out so that I can accomplish what I need to. Verse 16, so Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah the king of Judah had come down to see Joram. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And he said, I see a company of men. So as the watchman looks out over the wall, he sees this crowd of men, this company of men riding up. And Joram said, the king, get a horseman and send out a messenger to meet him and let him say to him, is it peace? In other words, King Joram said, okay, send out a messenger on horseback and say, hey, do you come in peace? Or if they're coming back from the war in Ramoth Gilead, has there been a peaceful resolution? You know, what's the word? Did we succeed? So the horsemen went out to meet him and Jehu said, thus, oh, excuse me, thus says the king, is at peace? And Jehu answered this messenger who came out to him, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying the messenger went to them, but is not coming back. And then he sent out a second horseman, same mission. And he went out and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu again answered that messenger saying, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So as they send two messengers out to Jehu, as soon as they get to him, again, you can tell this is a very assertive man, a confident leader. They say, hey, is it peace? He says, look, let's not even discuss this. Just get behind me. Just, just get, turn around 
and follow me. If you know what's good for you, get on this team. That's kind of the idea there. Turn around and follow me, he says. Again, just a very strong, confident leader. And, you know, strong leadership tends to breed commitment. Uh, just kind of the way the principle goes. And so he says, just get behind me and follow me. So the watchman reported back saying uh, he went up to them and is not coming back. In other words, we sent out two messengers and both of them went out and then they never came back. And they said, however, the driving, this is interesting, is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So apparently Jehu had a kind of driving reputation as well. His chariot drove furiously. That guy drives like Jehu, drives furiously. So Joram said, make ready. In other words, this was his commander. He thinks, okay, my commander, Jehu, he's strong in battle. He, you know, he's coming back with great confidence. He, he's ready to go out and hear good report of how Israel's made advancements in the battlefield. So King Joram gets himself ready in his chariot. And Joram, king of Israel, as well as Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who was there visiting with him, they both went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property, take notice, of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, ding, ding, that should ring a bell because that's where God prophetically said, as I said almost 15 years ago, that these very events of the loss of life and so forth would happen right at that location. Not a coincidence. It's called God orchestrates everything. Every step, us being where we are, when we are, when we are, why we are. Again, these are just, these aren't just random, we're thinking, well, these are just everyday random events. People are just making, right. But God is sovereign and God is superintending over what people think and do and choices they make. And so here they go out and they meet at the exact spot where God wants them to meet so God can orchestrate his plan according to the exact word of how he declared it. So they meet up there. And it happened, it says, verse 22, that when Jehu, or when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace? And Jehu firmly said to the king, what peace as long as the harlot trees of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? In other words, Jehu says, look, as long as the, the, the spiritual idolatry and the spiritual idolatry of your mother Jezebel and the witchcraft and the sorcery that she has introduced into this nation have not been dealt with, then he says there's never going to be peace in this nation. Again, the Bible tells us in Isaiah, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. You know, as long as someone lives in wickedness, as long as a nation lives in sin and rebellion and wickedness, God will never allow there to be a complete sense of peace. Because wickedness is contrary to the plans of God. So if you're constantly going against the current of God's will and God's word and God's ways, it's never going to be a peaceful experience. There's always going to be agita and agitation and disruption. And this is the idea. He's saying, look, this sin of your household, it's never been dealt with. And until it's dealt with, there's never going to be peace. And this is an important thing to remember. That if we leave things undealt with, that's why there's always that sense of constant disruption, whether in a nation or a family and even in our own lives at times. So Joram, realizing what's going on now, that he's about to be overthrown, he, he read between the lines. He turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. 
And Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram, another reference to Joram, spelled a little different, between his arms, and the arrow came out at his heart. This guy was a Rambo, man. I mean, just, boom, launched an arrow from behind, came straight through the front, right out of his heart. And he sank down, the king did, in his chariot. And then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up, throw him into the track of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite, for remember, he says, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, they apparently served under his administration as well, his father, that the Lord had laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord, quoting from 1 Kings 21. Now, therefore, take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. So he recognized that this was happening in direct accordance with what God had pronounced. Verse 27, but when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road of Beth-Hagon. So Jehu also pursued him and said, shoot at him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibleim. And then he fled to Megiddo, wounded, but ultimately died there and his seven servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David and the 11th year of Joram was when the son of Ahab Ahaziah had become king over Israel again what the Bible is referencing there the reason why Jehu also pursued and put to death Ahaziah the king of Judah is because Ahaziah was also a family descendant of the house of Ahab and so that's why we see him here also executing this king as well, trying to do a thorough job of what he was instructed as God's instrument to do. Verse 30, now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard it. So she's still alive at this time, the queen mother, probably much older at this time, but she's still alive there in the winter palace of Jezreel. And she heard about what had happened with Jehu and very interesting, verse 30, she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. So I don't know if she was thinking, maybe if I can just look purdy one more time, <laughs> I can seduce this guy like I've seduced everybody else, like my husband. And again, just, it just goes to show you that, you know, despite the age, nothing's changed in her heart. I mean, here somebody is chasing her down, ready to kill her, and she's putting on her best makeup, trying to look you know, beautiful, thinking she can persuade him somehow with her great attraction. So she's all painted up and looking down through the window, you, you know, trying to make herself pretty. Doesn't work too well, watch. Verse 31, then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? So notice, she calls him Zimri, the murderer of his master. Now, the reason why she says that is a purposeful insult. If you remember, Zimri was someone who years ago had at one time rebelled against the throne and literally he had a one week long reign and then he was pursued and committed suicide and his reign was over in a week. So what she's trying to do is in essence say, look, you would be wise to embrace me and take me and, and, and make an alliance with me because if not, you're going to end up just like Zimri. You think this little revolt is going to last. She says, uh, you're going to be done in a week. She's kind of again trying to just intimidate him with these statements. 
Well, verse 32, that didn't you know, in any way distract him or deter him because he looked up at the window where she was all painted in her cover girl makeup and he said, who is on my side? Who? So two or three of the eunuchs, the servants there, looked out the window at him when he asked who's on my side and then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and then Jehu trampled her underfoot. That is, he rode his chariot once or twice across her to make sure that she was dead. And when he had gone in, he then ate and drank. And then he said, go now and see to this accursed woman and bury her for she was a king's daughter. In other words, he says, go out and at least bury her. However, verse 35, so they went to bury her, but they found no more, notice, of her left than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore, they came back and told him this. And he said, this is, again, notice the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Elijah, the Tishbite, saying on the plot of ground at Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel so that they shall not say here lies Jezebel so again exactly according to how the word of the Lord said this was going to happen this very again disgraceful death she's cast down from up above you know, ends up dying. Even Jehu tries to go out and give her a, a, a burial. He feels a little bit convicted in his conscience as he's having a meal after she's been put to death. And when they go out, all they can find is just a small amount of remains because the scavenger dogs had already began to, to eat her corpse. And again, Jehu says, you know what? Again, this is the word of the, this is exactly how God prophesied that it was going to come to pass. And again, very unusual events. Yeah. Hard to read, but I, I would encourage you, keep noticing that the Holy Spirit keeps saying, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke. God's trying to convey to us, when I say something, it will come to pass. It may look like it's not going to come to pass. It may seem like it would never come to pass. People may try and escape it and elude it and stop it from coming to pass. But what God says, God will do. When God makes a declaration, when God gives a promise, when God prophesies about something, his word will always come to pass. His word is true, it's reliable, we can count on it, and God will bring those things to pass that he declares. And this was coming to pass according to exactly what God had declared. Chapter 10 says, Now Ahab had 70 sons, the Hebrew literally is descendants, may not all have been literal sons, maybe grandsons and so forth too in Samaria. So Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons. Set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. So Jehu makes a proposal. He sends a proposal in to where the descendants of Ahab were. Again, he's going to continue this process as God asked him to. And he makes a proposal. He talks to the elders and those who were kind of training and rearing up the sons who were a part of the royal dynasty. And he says, look, 
I'll tell you what, I'm going to propose something. This was very common in ancient culture. He says, how about you pick the best qualified? Put that guy on your father's throne. Make him the new king and let's fight for it. Because Jehu knows, look, rather than it be a bunch of bloodshed, why don't you just pick the top guy, make him your new king, and as the new king myself, I'll prove my valor and defeat him. So set him on his father's throne and send him out. But verse 4 says, when they heard this, they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, two kings could not stand up to them, to him, how then can we stand? So Jehu had already eliminated two kings, uh, these wise men, these elders, they, they, there's no way we can resist the commander Jehu. He was a strong military trained battle-hardened general. So he who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city and the elders and all those who reared the sons of the king sent to Jehu saying, we are your servants. So they just, they just capitulate. They just instantly submit. They, they surrender. We are your servants. We will do what you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Just do what is good in your sight. So verse 6, he wrote a second letter. He's going to confirm if they really are surrendered. And look what happens. It says, if you are for me and will obey my voice, in other words, if you're going to surrender and yield yourself to my authority as your new king, then he says, here's how you can prove it to me. Take the heads of the men of your master's sons. And come to meet me at Jezreel this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons, they slaughtered 70 persons, they put to death all 70 young men of that royal dynasty of Ahab's family line, and they put their heads in baskets, kind of gruesome, huh? and sent them to him at Jezreel. So he said, you want to indicate to me that you're in alignment with my new rulership? He said, I'm going to give you a chance to prove it. How about you send me the heads of those 70 descendants because I'm here to eliminate the dynasty of Ahab because of his sin and wickedness and what he had done. So they comply. They put to death the 70 sons. And verse 8 says, Then a messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now again, in, in ancient warfare, this was a common practice where, where they would put to death people and at times they would behead people and they would stack up the skulls near the gate of a city as a very clear way to communicate to people if you rebel against the authority of the one who is in charge, this will be your fate as well. And it was intended to just be a strong deterrent, gruesome, uh, hard to see and envision, but this was very common in ancient warfare. And so this practice is done here. Jehu wants to convey very strongly, lest anyone think about rebelling and turning back to try and preserve Ahab's line and reintroduce the things of his family. Verse 9 says, So it was in the morning, that he went out and stood and said to all the people, you are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? In other words, he was somewhat impressed that they were so thorough to do that. Know now, look again at verse 10, know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done 
what he spoke by his servant Elijah. Again, you see the reference there. He says, know for certain that nothing will fall vain, nothing will fail of that which the word of the Lord has spoken. Again, there's this continual emphasis in the midst of this very gruesome scene and kind of hard events to, to read through historically. You're thinking, oh my goodness. I mean, but again, there's this continual emphasis of the Holy Spirit. If nothing else to be seen, though sin was having to be dealt with very severely because of the great wicked influence, yet nonetheless, the Holy Spirit wants us to see that the word of the Lord was ultimately what was coming to pass. The idea is that man does not have the final word. God does. And boy, that's a great lesson. Because in our personal rebellion and attitude sometimes, and the way that we conduct ourselves, and sometimes the way we thumb our nose at God as a nation, and we think somehow that as, as men, we're going to have the final word. Oh, we don't like marriage that way. We're going to redefine marriage. Oh, God's going to look. You don't get the final word. I'm God. Well, well we don't like things, and, and we, we want to try and change things and take control and rule over ourselves and govern over ourselves. And look, that's been a mess since the Garden of Eden. We're not able to govern over ourselves. We need to be rolled over by God. And at the end of the day, God is going to have the final word. It's his word that's eternal in the heavens. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. That's why it is so foolish and vain and futile for us to try and change anything morally, spiritually, in regards to institutions that God has established in any arena because God's word is settled in the heavens in eternity. Things don't change there. It doesn't matter what's happening in relevancy of modern culture. God's word is settled in the heavens. It doesn't change. It will never change. And God will always have the final word. And this story is just another indication of that very thing ultimately coming to pass many years later now the lord has done he says what he spoke by his servant elijah so jehu verse 11 killed all who remained of the house of ahab and jezreel and all his great men and close acquaintances the priests until he left none remaining and he arose and departed and went to samaria and on the way abeth aked of the shepherds Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah. Remember, we said he was also a descendant of Ahab. We are the brothers of Ahaziah, which means their family. We've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. They were going to make a visitation to Jezebel, who they thought was still alive, and the family dynasty. And he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them. At the well of Beth Eked, 42 men, and he left none of them. Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. So Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him lifted him up into his chariot, and then Jehu said to this man, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. Now, that's an understatement, my zeal for the Lord. Certainly one thing this guy Jehu did not lack was zeal for what he was asked to do by the Lord. 
I mean, this is somebody, as I said, was commissioned to fulfill and carry out the word of the Lord and, and a very, very difficult task and commission he gets. But when he's given that task, I mean, he does it with great zeal and earnestness. Now, interesting, if you're interested in a little additional study, write in your Bible here, uh, Jeremiah chapter 35, because this man, Jehonadab, was a very godly man. Jeremiah 35 refers to him that his descendants literally hundreds of years later were still living in certain ways abstaining from wine and not doing certain things as the result of the influence of their father Jehonadab who was such a righteous godly man that gave them instruction and they so respected him that his influence lasted with not only his children, but to his children's children and their children and their children and all the way down through generations. So it's very interesting. We get this little snapshot of this man, Jehonadab. Jeremiah 35 tells us more about him, but no doubt this is why Jehu was very interested in having him be together with him and knew that this man would appreciate this supposed zeal that he had for the Lord in doing the work of God. Verse 17, and when he came to Samaria... He then killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according, here it is again, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now don't panic, watch what he's going to do. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests and let no one be missing. For I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it, and Jehu sent throughout all Israel. And all the worshipers came. So that was not one man left who did not come. And they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of Baal that was full from one end to the other. So it is a packed out worship service for Baal. You know, kind of sad that there's that much enthusiasm to pack out the house to worship Baal. And yet sometimes Yahweh God doesn't get that much of an attendance. Kind of sad, isn't it? But they're excited here. Hey, we're having an assembly. Everybody be there. We're going to worship Baal. We're going to have this great worship service gathering. So it says the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to one in charge of the wardrobe, the, the, the garments, the priestly robes that they would often wear, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshippers, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshippers of Baal. So, I mean, he's playing this up good. <laughs> you say, Make sure there's no worshippers of Yahweh God in here. We only want faithful devotees to uh, the, the God Baal here when we're going to have this worship service. So they went in to offer the sacrifice and burnt offerings that Jehu had appointed as well for himself, 80 men outside the temple. And he had instructed them, if any of the men whom I've brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. And it happened, verse 25, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu then said to the guard of the captain, to the captains, go in and kill them. Let not one come out, and they killed them with the edge of the sword. Again, how do you deal with 
deception? How do you deal with false religion? How do you deal with the spirit of error rather than the spirit of truth? With the edge of the sword, with the sword of the spirit, with the word of God. And so here they went in with a literal sword and put them to death. But again, we don't use a literal sword to destroy deception in the works of the devil. We use the sword of the spirit to put away the evil from among us and to cut away that which is deceptive and lying in its voice. So the guards and the officers threw them out. They went into the inner room and they brought the sacred pillars of the temple of Baal and they burned them, broke down the pillar of Baal and tore down the temple and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. So I mean, he he thoroughly... (laughs) went through the process of eliminating Baal worship here in a pretty you know, intense way. However, verse 29, the Bible gives us this sort of summary. Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. That is from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. We saw that quite a long time ago. He participated still in some of these idolatrous practices. And the Lord said, verse 30, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, God says, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. So notice, God does commend, verse 30 there, Jehu for his zeal in carrying out his commission as an instrument of the Lord. In fact, God promises there that he will have four generations. It says there, verse 30, to consecutively sit on the throne of Israel because of the fact that the Lord said to him, you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and eliminating the house of Ahab and doing all that is in my heart. Now, again, it's almost difficult to read that, isn't it? You're thinking, what? And again, here's where it's important to exercise faith and to not always think logically and try and fully wrap our minds around the ways and the workings of God. They're radically removing sin and evil and wickedness so that its influence does not continue to destroy the culture and they are carrying out the judgment of God which was a righteous judgment by doing the things that they were doing. So again, we shouldn't look at this and think, man, Jehu was just a bloody murderer. I mean, really, honestly, he was not. He was carrying out military endeavors that were actually commissioned by God. It was almost as if, and if I, the best way I could illustrate it, it was almost as if God, looking at one of these horrific, satanically inspired terror groups that do horrible, torturous, evil things to women and children and societies, and as if the Lord's saying, you know what? They need to be exterminated. They need to be removed. And so he went on this mission and carries this out to eliminate this evil because of the horrible thing it was bringing about among the nation because of what Ahab and Jezebel had done and were doing. Verse 31 says, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. And in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, And Haziel conquered them in all the territory of Israel, that is the Syrian commander, from the Jordan eastward, from the land of Gilead and Gad, Reuben and Manasseh from Arar, which is by the river Arnon, included Gilead and Bashan. And the rest of the acts of Jehu, and I'm sure you don't want to hear anything else about those, right? And all that he did 
and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria, and Jehoaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So he had a rather lengthy reign. 28 years is pretty long for some of these kings in the northern part of Israel. But let me, again, bring your attention by way of application to one or two things in light of this kind of lengthy, and as I said, I know kind of somewhat difficult narrative. Take notice in verse 30 and 31 here, as the Bible is referring to Jehu's life, it indicates to us that that Jehu did what was right as far as his works for the Lord, but yet Jehu was not paying attention to his own personal walk with the Lord. God says to him in verse 30, you're going to have four consecutive generations because he says, you carried out my works and did well in doing the works of God. But then the very next verse says, however, he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. That is in his own personal walk. The idea is he had zeal to do work for God, but he didn't have a real heart to want to actually worship and live with God in his personal and everyday life. And let me just say by way of principle, zeal to do God's work should never be a substitute for genuinely worshiping and walking with God yourself. And this is a common mistake we can make sometimes. I've seen over the years of pastoral ministry where sometimes people find their identity and their fulfillment and their spiritual life is just about doing work for God. And what can I do? And how can I serve in the church? And I need to do this. I need to do that. And, and you see them busy, busy, active, active. And somehow their works and the spiritual activities and works they do, that becomes sort of the substitute for worship life. And you start to wonder, do you ever worship God? Do you ever walk with God? And sometimes you peel back the layer and you find out, boy, they're very busy doing things for God, but they're not really living with God. They're not really obeying the word of God and how they live or how their family operates. They're just busy doing all kinds of works. And the works become a substitute for a worship life. Listen, worship should be first. Having a healthy personal relationship with the Lord is first and foremost. And out of that, the overflow then comes that we would then do works for the Lord. But never should one be reversed for the other. Let me say one other thing as we close and enter back into worship and perhaps something to ponder even tonight. Again, as we look at Jehu, he was very, very zealous. Would you agree? I mean, he was very zealous for what he was commissioned to do, which was to rid and remove the presence of what was sinful and evil. And he was very zealous in doing that. And look, certainly God is not commissioning, in case you're confused, any one of us to run around with a sword and try and get rid of evil. We're in a different dispensation. <laughs> and Jesus tells us to love our enemies. That's not how we conquer today. But nonetheless, this man was very zealous to rid and remove the presence of what was sinful and evil and its influence. And you know what? For us personally in our own lives, when we are dealing in our own lives with what is sinful and the presence of what is evil and wrong in our own lives, do you know what we need to have? Zeal. Zeal. We should not be apathetic about sin in our own lives. If there's some evil influence or something in us that needs to be dealt with, we should be earnest about dealing with that. 
We should be passionate and we should be zealous in doing what needs to be done to rid ourselves of it. Again, Colossians 3 says, put to death your members that are of the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires and covetousness and idolatry. Galatians 5 says, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 13 says, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us walk properly, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Make no provisions for the flesh. You hear the language the Bible uses? Yeah, I mean, I have this area, I kind of, this area of sin in my life. And look, the Bible says, put it to death crucify it, rid yourself of it, and make no provision for the flesh. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean I'm, I'm subduing it. No, God says, no. just like with Ahab's house. I don't want you to go subdue Ahab's house. I want you to put to death and exterminate everything from Ahab's house so that it doesn't rise back up in rebellion and take control again. And the same way, you know, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your arm offends you, cut it off. That's radical. Jesus isn't saying, oh, well, if you pluck out your eye, then you'll stop looking lustfully. The, the idea there is, is, is just radical. He's saying if, if you can't stop yourself from grabbing things and stealing, then cut off your arm if that's what you need to do. If you can't stop yourself from looking at something you shouldn't look at on a computer screen, then throw out your computer. Get rid of an iPhone for a while. I mean, you know, the idea is just radical, whatever it takes. That if there's an area that is something that is destructive and damaging in its influence, sinful and evil, the Bible says, put it to death, crucify it, make no provision for it. That is, don't give an opportunity. Because here's the thing. If they would have left alive one descendant, that one descendant, you know what that one descendant would have done? Oh, man. He would have been so passionate to regain control, right? I'm going to regain control for my family line because they put all the descendants of it. And he would have worked hard to regain control. And you know what? If I leave, I find in my life, maybe you're not as wicked as me. If I leave a tiny opportunity for my flesh, that's all it takes. That's all it needs. That's why the Bible says don't make a provision. Don't even give your flesh an opportunity. We need to be radical because our flesh is something that is perpetually going to incline us towards doing what's wrong and sinful and evil. So look, if nothing else, through the word of God and obedience to God, let us be zealous about anything in our life that would be evil or sinful or unhealthy, lest it have a destructive influence upon us. Let's stand together. Let's pray.